0: I'm reading um, Joel chapter 2, verse 1 to 17 on page 644. Um, An army of locusts, blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was of old, nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them fire devours, behind them a flame blazes, before them the land is like the Garden of Eden, behind them a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses, they gallop along like cavalry, with a noise like that of chariots, they leap over the mountain tops like a crackling fire consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through the defenses without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city, They run along the wall. They climb into the houses like thieves. They enter through the windows. Before them, the earth shakes. The sky trembles. The sun and moon are darkened, and the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number, and mighty are those who obey his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Rend your heart, even now, declares the Lord. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings to the Lord. Your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate this, the assembly. Bring together the elders. Gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the temple porch and the altar. Let them say, Spare your people, O oh Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say, Among the people, where is their God?
1: And the second reading is uh, from the book of Luke. Uh, Chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. It's on page 738 of the Pew Bibles. Repent or perish. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no. No. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. This is the word of the Lord.
2: Well, good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to share God's word with you, as always. Uh, we're beginning a series of Joel for three weeks, and uh, as I begin, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the unity that we enjoy in the Spirit, that all of us have access to you through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray now that as your people, we'd be a people that listen to you, They listen to your word because we want to be like the Lord Jesus Christ and give honour to him. Amen. Well, how do you respond when you're warned of disaster? On the 18th of January, 2003, uh, Renee and I were enjoying a visit to her family in Canberra. And it seemed like a normal summer's day, although a bit hot. But then someone knocked on the door a woman from across the road. She said to Renee, if you're going to go, you have to go now. And Renee asked, what do you mean? She said the, radio said, the radio said, if you're going to go, you have to go now. What she was talking about, of course, was the bushfires, the massive bushfire front that was approaching that side of Canberra. Uh, and that was the worst bushfire ever to hit Canberra. 400 homes were destroyed on that day. A woman was warning us. We had to prepare for a disaster that was coming. Do we stay? Do we go? Well, we decided that the children need to go. But some of the adults stood back to stay back to try and defend the house. Thankfully, the fires didn't reach that street, and uh, we were safe. But it was a very frightening day. And yet, I still remember the kindness of that woman to knock on the door, to warn us. Well, that's a bit like what the prophet Joel did at his day. He knocked on the door, not just of one house, but for the whole nation. He had a message from God to warn them. Uh, Now, Joel lived hundreds of years before Jesus. We're not exactly sure when, uh, but we do know it was a time of national crisis. Now, if you're a sports fan, you might think Australia is in a time of national crisis, We're about to lose the ashes. We lost the Bleslow Cup again. Um, If you're not a sports fan, well, you're just blissfully ignorant of these things. (laughs) I see a few glum faces of people that might have been to the rugby last night. Uh, But Joel faced a national crisis, much bigger than that, of course. But not everyone realised it. And so he brought them a message. And you could summarise his message in one phrase. The day of the Lord. The day when God would act decisively to achieve his purposes in the world. The day when God would come and set things right. A day that affects us all. And so through, through Joel, God is knocking on our door, giving us the same message to get ready. Now the day of the Lord meant lots of things. But the first thing it meant for the people of Israel was disaster disaster. So if you have Joel open in front of you, you might want to look at chapter 1, verse 15, because that summarises what he says. Alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Well, what was this disaster they were facing? Well, it was a plague of locusts. Now, I don't know if you're scared of grasshoppers particularly, uh, I think spiders creep me out more. But if you're a society that depends on yearly harvests, like ancient Israel did, and like many societies today still do, then you should be scared of locust plagues. And certainly the language Joel uses is scary. He says to them, what the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, the other locusts have eaten. This picture of this army coming through and invading and just stripping the land bare uh, my grandfather um, was a farmer, my uncle still a farmer and mum tells me that as she was growing up he was terrified of locusts even in Australia, even with insecticides locust plagues still happen and mum said she could remember, still remember the noise of the locusts as they would just descend upon a paddock and eat everything that was green, if they came near the house they would try and eat the green paint off the house In 1958, in Ethiopia, there was a locust plague, and they ate more than 167,000 tonnes of grain. That's food for over a million people. And if that's not bad enough, a drought is also mentioned by Joel. A drought where even the animals will call out to God for food. So Joel knew that a national catastrophe was coming. It threatened the whole country. Why? Well, Joel doesn't give an exact reason, but he knows that God is sending it. He doesn't, unlike other prophets, say, here are the things you've done wrong. Here's the list of charges that you've done. But the kind of thing that's looming in the background that we all know about, if we read the Old Testament, is the covenant, the special relationship that God had with Israel. See, when God rescued Israel from Egypt, he took them to his promised land, they made an agreement. I will be your God, you will be my people. If you serve me, I will bless you. But if your heart goes astray, if you worship other gods, if you don't serve me, if you do wrong, you will be punished. And we all know the sorry record of their sin. And so Joel warns them of disaster that is coming. But notice how he warns, not like how we might we might think, well, to convince people you need a, a scientific report. You need something weighty. But Joel, Joel just uses passionate preaching. He uses poetry and images. Have a listen to verse 2. He says, Hear this, all you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of the forefathers? Verse 5. Even the, the people in society who are the least likely to notice, drunkards, even they're going to notice what's going to happen. He says, wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it's been snatched from your lips. You see, it's a bit like those, those graphic ads on television that, that want you to that, that try to make you quit smoking. You know, there's various ways you can do it. You can you know, list people, all the scientific evidence that shows why smoking is bad for your health. Or you can just show pictures of this is what will happen. And that's what Joel does. Not because he wants to emotionally manipulate people, but because he knows the reality of suffering that will come upon. He's not, he's not holier than now, He stands with the people. He knows that he's part of the problem too. But he desperately wants them to respond to the warning so that somehow they might escape. It gives a tragic picture of what this disaster will do to people. He talks about, in verse 12, vines drying up, fig trees withering, palms, apple trees, all all the fruit drying up. But then he says, the joy of mankind is withered away. It's like our joy is a fruit on an apple tree that's dying and just withering away. And you might feel that locust plagues and droughts are a long way from us living in our city comfort. But think about that. Isn't that our human experience? Human joy withering away. Where I was at church last year, the preacher used to like to say the human experience is fundamentally tragic. I, I thought at first that this was just kind of one of those dramatic things that preachers say sometimes to you know, get attention. But the more I reflected on it, the more I realised that was true. You see, contrary to the stereotype, the, God, the Bible doesn't... Um, help us escape reality, it confronts us with reality. It tells us what life is really like. Don't we feel human joy withering away when our dreams are frustrated? Don't we feel human joy withering away as our relationships are strained and broken, as we watch loved ones die? And God never denies the pain and and sadness of human existence. He's promised to do something about it. He knows the suffering of his people. He cares. And that's why he warns them. He knocks on the door to warn them so they can escape. But as Joel keeps warning, something even bigger fills the horizon. He's talked about locusts. He's talked about drought. But then in chapter 2, the warning gets supercharged into something huge. You see, the sound of locusts is replaced by a sound of Chariots, a mighty army coming to to battle. But it's no ordinary army that's going to invade their country. See, in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, what, what sort of army could this be? Before them the earth shakes, the sky trembles, the sun and moon are darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number and mighty are those who obey his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? See, the day of the Lord is coming. God will invade the land. And these signs of locusts and drought are just warnings of something even bigger, an even bigger disaster. You see, Joel knew that the prophets before him had warned about the day of the Lord, the day when God would act to sweep away all the evil from the world and set things right, replace all the ungodly human kingdoms of the world with his kingdom. But the bad news for Israel was even though they knew God, they were part of the mess that God was coming to clean up. Their hearts weren't right before him. And if Israel... If they would struggle to survive this locust plague, how could they possibly survive the day of the Lord? Who can endure it? See, Joel brings them to this point of crisis and despair in his preaching. But just as he does that, he then lifts them up to show them the way out the way out that God himself has provided. Chapter 2, verse 12, we reach a turning point. God speaks. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. How do you respond when you're warned of disaster? Well, Joel tells his people the only way to respond is to repent. Stay, go, no, return. He says, return to the Lord your God. That's what repentance is about. It's about turning your life around. And there were certain ways they had to express this, mourning and weeping for their sin. But God says, I I see the heart. I want you to return to me with your heart. I want your mourning, your sorrow for sin to be genuine. And see, grief, grief, our sin can be a really good thing. The New Testament tells us that godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to salvation. but worldly sorrow produces death. God wants people to return to God with all their hearts. He wants them to mourn for their sin and he wants them just to throw themselves on his, on his love and compassion and mercy because that is the only escape. The only hope is God. Their problem is God, he will judge them, but their only hope is God because of his grace and compassion. I um, was reading on the internet um, some people discussing uh, the release of uh, a Libyan man convicted for um, blowing up the Pan Am flight many years ago in the UK because uh, on compassionate grounds that he's about to die soon. And um, it's a complicated issue, you know, what are the rights and wrongs of that? Should they show mercy to this man? But One of the people that commented after said, they shouldn't show him compassion, you have to earn compassion. Well, no, that's completely the wrong, that's that's not repentance. God shows compassion because he's compassionate. That's the whole point about compassion and mercy. You don't deserve it, but God gives it because of who he is. And Joel says to people, look, this is the way out. He knocks on the door and says, God's character, God's love, that's your only hope. And not that, that message of repentance? Isn't that the same message that we preach? Isn't that the message of the Christian gospel? What did Jesus start preaching when he turned up? Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so we believe that the day of the Lord has come in Jesus, don't we? That God has acted to conquer evil when Jesus died on the cross, when Jesus rose again to defeat death. God has set things right. The kingdom of God has come. And yet, we know there's more to come. We know the kingdom of God is not here in its fullness, in its perfection. We wait for Jesus to return. And God has given the nations of the world time time to repent, time to return to Him before Jesus comes, in the final day of the Lord, before Jesus comes to judge the world. And this is the most important warning you'll ever hear. Of all the warnings about your health, of all the warnings about your finances, nothing compares to this warning from God about your eternal future. If you haven't yet turned to Christ, what's what's stopping you? What reason is there for not repenting? And trusting in Jesus as your saviour. I know most of you have done that. And as Christians, we are a bit like Joel in a way. Because as we speak to people about Jesus, we're knocking on their doors. We're warning them to repent before the day of the Lord comes. It's hard to do, but it's an act of love. It's like that woman... Across the road from Renee's parents' house, she loved us by knocking on the door to warn us. Hear this, Joel says, wake up. That's our message. I mean, it's much easier to speak of how Jesus has improved our lives, how he's given us purpose and and peace and joy, and that's true. But it's only half the story, isn't it? Jesus is coming back. We must repent before he returns. Well, in September, there's going to be a Jesus All About The Life media campaign. You might have heard about this. You can look it up on the, on the web, Jesus All About Life. It's being run by the Bible Society. Uh, it's a kind of a, a prime time media campaign, you know, television, billboards, radio, etc. With short messages to, to raise the agenda of Jesus. And, and they want to help Christians to speak about Jesus with their friends. Uh, great thing and we should probably start talking to each other well what are we going to say to our friends if they hear one of these ads how are we going to raise it with them but as we speak to our friends about Jesus are we prepared to give that warning are we prepared to talk about repentance are we prepared to warn people that Jesus is returning there's something else that warns people though apart from our words. The disasters that still happen today are, in a strange way, God's warning. Um, but they're not quite like Joel. So why we had the New Testament reading, Luke 13. You remember those people that came and asked Jesus a question? These two tragedies happened. You happened. Know, a brutal leader had killed people. A tower had fallen on people. And they came and asked Jesus. Surely Jesus would know why God let these things happen. And yet, as so often in the gospel, Jesus doesn't give the answer they expect. In fact, his answer turns it back on them. Why do these things happen, Jesus? Jesus says, don't think they're worse sinners than you. You see, we can't make that simple equation, one plus one equals two, when we see disasters in the world. We can't think, well, those people somehow deserved it. And that's why they... They deserved it more than us. That's why they died and we didn't. No, Jesus said, you too must repent. We all deserve God's judgment, but in his kindness, he gives us time to repent. And see, these disasters are in a strange way his warning that the world isn't the way it should be and that judgment is coming when Jesus returns. It's a real question. A friend of mine during the week was talking about the the typhoon that's hit uh, Taiwan and she was saying that many of the worst areas that have been hit are some of the villages in the mountains where lots of Christians are and they're wondering you know how, how could God why would God single out them for this disaster and we don't know we don't, we don't know like Joel why this has happened we don't have that specific word from God but we do know that God loves us we do know that we're no worse than them uh, sorry they're, they're no worse than us And we do know that he's warning us to repent. It's God's early warning system in a way that these things happen. And so often, isn't it, that people become Christians through these disastrous things happening in their life, small-scale disasters in people's life, no less painful for them, make people listen to the gospel sometimes. Earlier in the year I met someone from church like that. Here at church, he he said, I asked him how he became a Christian, he said, his life fell apart within six months. His long-term relationship broke up. His dad passed away. His world came crashing down. It was like Jesus saying to him, you've built your house on the sand. Now, come and build your house on the rock. Come to me. And that's what he did. He repented. He put his trust in Jesus and he now knows the joy of salvation. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Repentance isn't just the start of the Christian life. It's not just when we first come to Jesus. We must keep repenting. Repentance lasts throughout the Christian life. We must keep repenting with all our heart. Um, I had the great joy of um, helping a man come to know Jesus for the first time. And uh, he, he came along for a similar reason. He had illness in his life and he was becoming desperate He became somehow conscious of God and his need for God. And um, I was shocked the first time I explained the gospel to him. He said, yeah, that's true. Anyway, he he kept coming along to church and I'd meet with him and read the Bible. And he realized, he kept asking me questions about his life. He knew he needed to make changes. So this is repentance. Well, what about this job, Reese? And should I work two jobs? And he decided, no, he shouldn't work two jobs because he needed to spend more time with his family. And what about these relationships, Reese? What, what should I do? What's God telling me? And we prayed about it and we read the Bible. He even made the, the, the change of selling, deciding to sell his house and move back to Vietnam because he, he had a son over there. He realized he was neglecting his duties as a father and needed to be reunited with his young son over in Vietnam. You see, all these changes we make as we return to the Lord, they add up. Sometimes they're big like that. Sometimes they're just small, just the way we, we talk to people. But these changes add up and and they make us stand out from the crowd. Well, think about the people you're going to spend the week with at work, mother's group, clubs. Will they notice you? Will you and I stand out to them? Will they notice that our heart belongs to God and that we're people who are repenting, that we're people who are turning our life around to live God's way because we've been warned. How are we going to speak to these these people? We'll be known as the person that speaks the truth, but speaks it gently. We'll be known as the person that uses our words to build people up and encourage people rather than to tear people down with sarcasm and cynicism. We'll be known around the office as the person that doesn't gossip, the person that can be trusted, uh, will we be known as the person that's, that's willing to include people in, in lunchtime conversations, the, the the quiet people, the, the awkward people that, that get marginalised? Will we be known as the person that includes them because we know God has included us into his family? Will we be known as the person that shows a genuine interest and wants to listen to people? I know a man like that. At his office, he, he had that much integrity. He was trusted that much that people would come and knock on his door, into, come into his office and, and share their personal problems with him because they trusted him. They knew his wisdom. They knew his integrity. And that gave him many opportunities to point them to Jesus as they talked about the disasters they were facing in their life. So how, do you, how do you respond when you're warned of disaster? When you hear God's knock on the door, there's only one option, isn't there? To return to the Lord. To return to, with all your heart to the Lord who is gracious and compassionate and waiting with open arms to receive us. Let's pray. O oh Lord, you are our only hope in disaster. We know that you are gracious and compassionate. We know that you're a God of love despite all the things we go through, because while we were still sinners, you sent your son to suffer and die for us. Do pray that all of us here would be people of repentance, people that have put their trust in Jesus and returned to you. We pray that you'd help us repent day by day, that all these changes that we make in our life would add up and, and we would stand out from the crowd at work and in our families and with our friends. And people would live a compelling life so that people would take notice and want to know what's different. We pray that we'd be willing to speak to them about Jesus, to speak of his love, to speak of his warnings. And we pray all these things for Jesus' name. Amen.